It's Tuesday, August 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Biden administration wants to reform state drug laws and focus on what's called harm reduction, which promotes safe drug use instead of abstinence and threats of jail time. The Office of National Drug Control Policy will be promoting draft model laws that supports harm reduction programs, increase treatment options, and reform criminal statutes. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for this and also how a Cape Cod COVID outbreak, mostly in unvaccinated people, prompted the CDC to change its mask-wearing guidance. Next, where will the future of booze take us? Spirits are currently going through a revolution where distillers are using new methods and applying them to classic and unfamiliar ingredients. Think of things like marigolds, pasilla peppers, coffee fruits, and more. The trend is toward bigger flavors, weird fermentations, and more sustainability. But one of the issues with all these new weird flavors is how to market them to those that might not be adventurous as others. Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It has been stunning to me to see how this law has so terribly impacted the lives of folks, many of whom who need help, many of them who need treatment, uh, but devastated their lives with this disproportionate sentencing. Joining us now is Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Happy to talk to you. I want to talk about a couple of interesting things. First off, I wanted to talk about the Biden administration and you know what they're trying to do to reform state drug laws. They're looking at something called harm reduction measures. This focuses on safe drug use over abstinence and the threat of imprisonment, which is kind of, you know, what we've been going through with the war on drugs type of thing. This is would be a shift away from that. So tell us a little bit more about what harm reduction is and then what the administration is doing about it. So harm reduction has been around for, you know, 30 years or more. It's basically the idea that you try instead of throwing people who use illicit drugs into jail, that you sort of uh, meet them what they're, where they're at and they're going to use drugs. And you try and help them do that as safely as can. As they can. You might give them drugs that reverse overdoses, or you might show them how to safely inject, you know, if it's a, the risk of an overdose from a drug. Or you might, you know, give them clean needles to use instead of old ones so that they don't spread HIV or, or hepatitis. It, and, you know, the hope is that people, you know, eventually at time will go into recovery, but you don't force it on them. You try and sort of just, as they say, meet them where they are. And so these approaches, obviously, you know, I can I can already see a lot of people not happy with them because you're not eliminating that drug use, right? People would say you're still yes. prom- promoting that drug use. But with some of these programs, is getting into recovery, is that part of these programs? Yes and no. Um, if you talk to someone in harm reduction, they say, no, we're not going to force people to do that. You can. It, it, it turns out, though, that if you're wise and, and you just make friends with people, essentially show them and trying to help them that they're more likely to go into it on their own. It's sort of a person's own personal decision, like when they've decided to do this or not. And it just turns out that human nature being what it is, that it's better if the person makes a decision for themselves rather than you putting a gun to their head and saying, you got to do this, that it turns out it just doesn't work. So we've been seeing a lot of numbers recently. More than 93,000 people died of drug overdoses last year. That's the highest number we've ever seen. A lot of that has to do with fentanyl, which you and I have talked a lot about. 25 to 40 times more potent than heroin, and it's kind of leaking into other drugs. It's being mixed into other stuff. So what is the administration trying to do? What's the latest action that they're trying to do with all this? 
Well, what we reported today was that they are trying to promote model laws for states that would enhance the idea of harm reduction. And that is in response to this increase of overdoses. And where what's going on is fentanyl has infiltrated the heroin supply, the illicit drug market uh, west of the Mississippi as well as east of it. So you're you know basically doubling the area of which people are exposed to this. And during the pandemic, it seems clear that more fentanyl started coming into the U.S. versus heroin, which, you know, is dangerous enough as it is. And so people are going to be using this. They're going to be having more overdoses. The, and also with the pandemic upsetting essentially the supply chain for this, you're going to have a more variable dose where that is what might kill people. Instead of going to the same dealer who is giving the same stuff they were using before, this they have to go to a different person or it's a different supply. And that change in in potency, you know, that they're getting from these shifts, it might be what's leading to this increase in overdoses, which is like a 30% increase over 2019, which was bad enough as it was. And so the idea is that we're going to enshrine harm reduction ideas into state laws. And there's a way to try and knock this down. Like, you know, if people are going to use drugs, let's have them use it as safely as possible, not have HIV and hepatitis outbreaks while we're at it. So we're seeing this program is going to be trying to promote model laws, but we're seeing this come at a time where there are cities across the country, as you noted in your article, that are shutting down things that uh, some right. of these model laws might do, like needle exchange sites, things like that. Right. Well, what we're, we're seeing in some places, and it's clear, most clear, like in Charleston, West Virginia and Atlantic City, is there's this effort post-pandemic to spur business. And the city council uh, or their equivalents are looking around and saying, like, why do we want a needle exchange where we're trying to have a shopping mall or a casino or that kind of thing? And so there's this and you also have this turnover of sort of lawmakers who don't understand harm reduction. They didn't go through the last cycle of it. They just look at, as you say, this sort of stigmatizing view of it is like, oh, you're just helping people do drugs instead of saying, like, essentially, we're asking them a football helmet while they're doing it, you know, instead of letting them crash into each other on the field. And so you get this kind of anti-drug attitude that, you know, opposes all forms of like trying to make life better for these folks. And that conspires to shut these things down. At the same time, on the federal level, even the Trump administration had embraced needle exchanges. You see the Biden administration moving to sort of more normalize it, harm reduction, that is, so that, you know, just try and help these people out. You know, you don't want to get sick, don't want to die. One of the other aspects of this is are the punitive damages. You know, a lot of laws treat overdoses as criminal acts, which is kind of interesting. I didn't really realize that too much. I hadn't looked into it. You know, instead of a health event, help this person, you know, get uh, treatment, all that other stuff. It's a criminal act. You can face jail time if you overdose on something. Right. Well, some states have had to institute Good Samaritan laws where if you report that somebody you're with has an overdose, that you're not going to be arrested. I mean, this is a fear that people have in some states. In other places, like just carrying syringes is enough to get you arrested. You know, people complain about needle litter. It's be- and the reason is in a lot of places is because it's illegal to have the needles so people get rid of them as fast as they can. That's why they're all over the place. And, you know, more important, there's these very fundamental changes that need to be made to laws. Like you get arrested, you lose your access to Medicaid, then you can't go into recovery because there's nothing to pay for it. And so you might be on like medication-assisted treatment, which is, the you know, seems to be the best way to help people who are addicted to opioids. But then they get, you know, picked up on a bench warrant because they missed a meeting with their parole officer because their lives are pretty messy. They lose their Medicaid. They lose their, you know, chance to get paid recovery. So there's a whole vast array of like that machinery of the law that needs to be uh, fixed to help people, you know, in this situation, which is killing a lot of people. It was a problem before the pandemic. It was exacerbated by the pandemic. And, you know, we'll have to see what any of this action, uh, if it does help improve any of that. And speaking of the pandemic, you know, I've been seeing a lot of this Cape Cod COVID outbreak, just headlines about it. This Mm -hmm. is kind of one of those things that caused the CDC to reverse 
their guidance on mask wearing. Vaccinated individuals should also be wearing masks in certain high transmission areas. Tell us about what we saw in that. This has to do with a lot of parties and, and things that were going on around July 4th. So, uh, you know, around July 4th, the outbreak they're talking about, you know, was in Provincetown. And obviously that was a, a big party time. And so there were a lot of people dancing very close to each other then, which is suspected by some observers have played a role in the outbreak. And uh, what essentially happened was on Tuesday last week, CDC came out and said, whoa, 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 we're seeing signs that people who are vaccinated are still uh, having levels of virus in them that are equivalent to what people who are unvaccinated are having. And that's worrisome because that might mean they're transmissible. We've told a bunch of people they can't transmit when they're vaccinated. And if we've given people bad advice, we're worried about that. So we're going to try and reverse this masking advice to say, like, if you're indoors in an area where there's high transmission, and even if so, even then, if you've been vaccinated, you should wear a mask, which was a switch. It turns out that's 63 percent of the counties in the country. And then immediately everybody started asking, like, you know, where is this evidence that you're seeing? You know, we can't talk about it. It's clusters. There was political pushback. Uh, Republicans in Congress were suspicious of uh, mask mandates. Were saying it's a case in India, and that turns out to not be true. They don't seem to be willing to cop to that, because the CDC said on Friday, yes, it was this case in uh, Provincetown. They don't even name the town in their their MMWR, the mortality and morbidity weekly report that described it. But that's where it is. It was Provincetown. Right. So what we now know is that. There was a pretty big outbreak there. It was probably about 800 people, and, and half of them were out-of-towners. And uh, the data they have is from the Massachusetts residents, from the Massachusetts Department of Health. And what was really striking was that 75%, there about 74% of the people vaccinated were the ones who had gotten infected. The thing is, that makes us all uncertain, is that most people had vaccinations, and we know the vaccines already aren't perfect. So it might just be that, like, the vaccines aren't perfect, but a hell of a lot of people are vaccinated. So, of course, there's some breakthrough in infections, which is why, you know, more of the people in the sick crowd were turned out to be vaccinated. But what was alarming to the CDC was the measures of their illness. There's these genetic tests, you know, where you take a swab from a person and run it through a machine and you see how many cycles of amplification of the genes it takes for them to get the proof positive for the disease. And this is what the MMWR showed. It was that they were statistically equivalent in the vaccinated and unvaccinated people, which would suggest that they had equal amounts of virus in them, but not necessarily. So, like, that's the reason why everybody's cautious about this. You know, CDC is essentially saying here, maybe people have as much virus in them, maybe. But we don't know for sure because it's only these PCR tests and not a really fully functional lab test that's shown this or, you know, an infection chain. Dan Vergano, science reporter at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for putting up with me. I I do like talking about this with you. Take care, man. fruit that goes around the coffee bean, which is actually a pit, or using, you know, a kind of chili perhaps that you wouldn't use as much of because it comes from small farms, let's say, and turning those into the kinds of things that you can then ferment and then distill. Joining us now is Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of the new book, Full Spectrum. How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. He also wrote a book on booze called Proof, the Science of Booze. Adam, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. wanted to talk about booze, actually, for this one and kind of the future of what it could be right now. Uh, it's Spirits are going through this kind of revolution where distillers are looking for new methods of how to distill stuff, uh, discovering old ones using classic ingredients, new ingredients, and all this is making for some weird flavors, let's say, but they can taste very good. Sometimes they're not for everybody. 
but uh, we're also looking at a sustainable future of booze. So Adam, tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. Well, I think there's sort of an intersection of two trends that are kind of unavoidable if you're interested in making booze that like people want to drink, that tastes good and that's interesting, and also dealing with a changing planet, with climate changing what kinds of agricultural products will grow and where they will grow and how easy it is for them to grow. Because that's the basis for all of what people drink. Because you start with essentially, you know, fruits or grains or the kinds of stuff that you make beer or whiskey or brandy or scotch or weird stuff out of. And the fact is that the places where those things can be grown and the kinds of things that can be grown are changing because the temperature gets hotter in some places or the water gets higher. There's less water to use to do farming. Distilling itself is a really energy intensive process because it requires heat because you have to heat up the stuff that you fermented to make it go through a still. So you want to use less of that if you can. And so distillers, a lot of them, because they care about the world and because they want to make good things that they can sell, are trying to find new ingredients that are more sustainable. So they're more sustainable to grow, more sustainable to find. Sometimes they're the things that you wouldn't use if you were making some other product. Like there are some distillers using the fruit that goes around the coffee bean, which is actually a pit, or using, you know, a kind of chili perhaps that you wouldn't use as much of because it comes from small farms, let's say, and turning those into the kinds of things that you can then ferment and then distill. And as a bonus, or I guess it depends on which way you look at this, because either the sustainability is the bonus or this is the bonus. The other thing is you get these new things to drink and to try that some people will really love or that are really interesting flavors. And a lot of these people are real artists. These distillers are real. They're artisans and they're craftspeople. They want to make something that's cool and new that nobody's tried or tasted before. So for your latest article, one of the distilleries you profiled was Empirical Spirits, and they're doing just that. They're using pasilla chilies to make certain spirits. They're even getting into the kind of seltzer market, I guess you can call it. And they have weird combinations like oolong tea, gooseberry, walnut wood. Tell us a little bit about them and some of the flavor profiles they're going for. Yeah, Empirical is really interesting. So they come out of, they're in Copenhagen, and they come out of a restaurant called Noma, which was one of the real kind of revolutionaries in uh, what's called for a while molecular gastronomy. And the idea there was to use all sorts of techniques from industrial food preparation and from even chemistry labs to turn into really interesting ways to prepare and combine foods and get new flavors. It's a very theatrical and fun experience. It's super expensive, of course. Very few people can afford to go to Noma. So a couple of folks who'd worked there in in their R&D, actually, in their research and development, formed this distilling company. And what they wanted to try to do was take some of that same spirit of using, you know, laboratory techniques like using something called a vacuum still, which uses vacuum and low pressure instead of using heat like a traditional still might in a, if you went to a you know place like wild turkey or something to extract different flavors from the botanicals from the kind of plants that would flavor what they made. And they're using things like even um, the pits of plums, the inside of, the, of a plum pit, which would be something that you would perhaps even throw away otherwise if you were going to make plum compote or something using that because there's still some starch in it, which you can convert to sugar and ferment and then distill and combine with all kinds of other strange flavors like uh, a marigold kombucha. So marigold is a kind of flower, of course. Kombucha is a fermentation done with bacteria and yeast. You take that and then distill that and mix that with what you made from the plum kernels. And you get these really interesting new kinds of flavors using even techniques like um, in Japan, one of the ways that they make, the way that they make sake, for example, is using a fungus called koji, which turns the starch and rice into a sugar that yeast can digest and turn into alcohol. So they'll use koji instead of using a malting process like you'd use for a whiskey, let's say. All these different things combined make weird new flavors that you wouldn't expect in a distilled spirit. And then they mix all those things together and bottle them up and sell them. And it's hard to even know what to call some of these things. <laughs> You're used to the categories that you might see in a store like, oh, this is the vodka aisle and this is the gin aisle right. and this is the whiskey aisle. And these things don't even fit in 
into those categories. You know, what would you call them? I, I'm not even really sure, but they're an interesting look at what people might be, the kind of people who like to drink alcohol, what they might be drinking in the future. Tell me a couple of the flavors that you tried and, and, and what you thought about them. And then you even noted in the article, the guys at Empirical say, you know, we're, we're kind of bad salesmen. You know, it's tough to describe to people how these weird flavors come across, what they might taste like. And, you know, an adventurous drinker might want to try anything. But how do you market this to the less adventurous drinker? How do you make these things break through? It's such an interesting question, isn't it? Because, of course, you're talking about two different things. You're talking about, as you say, whether somebody is really adventurous and is sort of novelty-seeking in the thing that they want to drink or eat or anything. It's true for any kind of food or drink, really, not just alcohol-containing. And then also, how do you sell it? How do you put a label on it? How do you get it past the government bureaucracies that label different kinds of spirits? How do you get it on to, into a store? Where do they shelve it at the BevMo? How do you make those kind of decisions? And so, you know, that becomes a tough question. Some of it, I think, is, well, what the people at Empirical would say, and they were sort of joking about being bad salespeople, because, of course, they're well-known in the industry now. And they would probably say, well, you go to bars first, and you start at kind of the high end or the haute cuisine parts of the really, like, the jumped-up expensive cocktail bars that are making a real um, that will pride themselves on having something that people haven't tried before and are able to have a conversation with you if you're sitting at the bar, where the bartender knows how to explain and tell a story and do the theater that people who go to bars like to experience as much as they do with the new taste. And then it begins to expand outward. I think there's that force that has to happen in kind of the business side. I also think, and this is a little bit more dystopian of me, I suppose, but I think these are going to be necessary. I think as as it becomes more and more difficult to acquire commodity grains because they use too much water and you have to plant other kinds of foods, as it becomes more and more difficult to channel certain kinds of fruits or plants or whatever into the world of distilling, people are going to have to be a little more adaptable, I guess, Um, innovative. They're going to have to be disruptive. I don't know. What's the positive way of saying that climate change is going to change everything and it includes this part of the human experience? This is going to be the trend, as you mentioned, just people looking for different things to do, but it is a trend towards these bigger flavors, right? So, you know, in the last couple of minutes that we have here, then, you know, what was some of the best flavors that you did try from Empirical, things that you might see could be the future? Sure. Well, so just on on one side, kind of on the more traditional side, they make a thing that's a lot like a whiskey. They start with a grain and then they ferment that and distill it and then age it in an an oak barrel. And that tasted very much like a really good bourbon to me, like you would, you know, if you're a bourbon drinker. But it also, so it has all those same flavors, the kind of maltiness and the oak of the the wood and the kind of uh, dried fruit flavors almost um, and the the, the taste of that that aged brown spirit. But they also were doing that with a koji fermentation like you would use in sake. So it had some kind of nutty umami like flavors to it that was really beautiful and that was sort of more traditional and then on the there's you know sort of on the on the other side of the spectrum there's the one you mentioned the one made from pasilla mije chilies and i don't usually like chili distillates i don't usually like that combination of a, of, of the heat that kept and heat from a chili in booze i thought this was delicious I've, I've actually they sent a sample of that and i've been um, enjoying that even beyond the tasting that i had with them over zoom I thought it was terrific. And you get the heat from the chilies at the beginning of it and the sort of smell of, of almost like a roasted pineapple smell in it. It's really lovely. It's yeah. a really lovely just thing to take sips of. Adam Rogers, senior correspondent at Wired and author of Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. Also the author of Proof, The Science of Booze. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.